This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 322 with Tiffany Bloom. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, as well as any discount codes from our sponsors can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 322. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Tiffany Bloom wants every woman to recognize, embrace, and pursue the big dreams and beauty born inside of them. As an author, blogger, speaker, teacher, podcast host, wife, and mother, Tiffany shares her personal stories of self-value and self-doubt, international adoption, entrepreneurship, marriage, heartbreak, motherhood, and more, with an ever-growing audience now numbering in the hundreds of thousands. In addition to reaching her readers via her own blog, Tiffany shares her disarmingly perceptive, honest, and frequently funny writing on other popular outlets such as ScaryMommy.com, Deeply Rooted Magazine, and more. As the co-host of Why Though podcast and an in-demand speaker, Tiffany also leads conversations around modern faith, contemporary women, culture, and so much more. She has penned two books, the acclaimed Bible study Never Alone, released in February of 2018, And her new book, released in February of 2019, She Dreams, Live the Life You Were Created For. Tiffany lives with her family in Tacoma, Washington, and she is the shameless mom to her two sons, ages eight and four. So I was really, really excited to have Tiffany come on the show. Her team sent me a video of a talk that she did a while ago, and I was pretty blown away. 
And I told her, I was like, I have to admit, I had tears in my eyes like the entire talk. So I will link to that talk in the show notes for this episode. I want you to go watch it. Tiffany has a powerful story and she's an amazing storyteller. She's a great writer, a great speaker. And I just know that she's going to touch you. She talks a lot about international adoption. She talks about race. She talks about birth rejection trauma, just so many big, big things. And we cover all of this in today's interview. So listen in to hear Tiffany share her story of being born in an orphanage in Delhi, India, and adopted by a white family at the age of two. Her experience of being unlike anyone around her from the time she was born because of her birth story and her skin color. How rejection at age 21 reopened her birth rejection trauma. The suicide rate and mental health struggles that are eight times greater in adoptees. Why her decision to adopt internationally had nothing to do with her experience of being adopted. How she faced discrimination as an East Indian woman, especially since 9-11, and how she is talking to her kids about systemic racism and walking her black son through his own awareness of discrimination at such a young age. So this is a big conversation. We cover a lot of ground, and I know that you are just going to be really, really touched by Tiffany's story and how openly she shares all of it. So I'm very excited and very honored to introduce you to Tiffany Bloom. Tiffany Bloom, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited to have you here. And we're neighbors, which makes this more fun. Oh, so glad to be here. Yes. Yeah, so Tiffany and I realized that we both live in the greater Seattle area, which is exciting because we often don't do a lot of work with people and communication with people in our neighborhood, so to speak. So this is kind of a fun adventure. Absolutely. So Tiffany, tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio. And what are you most excited about right now? Yes. So obviously from my bio, you know, I'm a writer and speaker and podcaster and get to travel and speak to women. But I would say the dynamics of my personal and professional life are right up between my eyes right now, simply because I work from home and my husband also works from home. So I'd say the dynamic of learning to balance working from home and having a home office with also a spouse who works from home, because it's one thing to work from home and the other person doesn't or the other roommate doesn't or whatever. But I think it's another thing when you're both trying to value each other's space and place responsibilities and workload in a way that is honoring and respectful. So I would say that is what I'm learning to balance in the dynamics of that, of learning to keep that in healthy place Mm -hmm. where one person isn't caring more of the family labor than the other. And we're very much co-parent, co-team. Like we split the responsibilities down the middle who feels most equipped to finish the task. He does all the cooking. I manage all the money, you know, like we figure out who wants to do what. So we don't adhere to any traditional roles per se, but it is kind of a balance to keep that dynamic up and running, especially with how much I travel. And so I'm gone on the weekends a lot. So he's usually mom and dad to kids. Yeah. I was laughing when you mentioned juggling you both working from home. Cause I think a lot of people think that that sounds kind of fun and exciting and maybe even romantic. And I've yeah, done- we don't go to brunch. Like, that's not- <laughs> I've done the both of us work from home thing. And it was really hard. Yeah, I found it to be hard on my workflow and hard on our marriage. Like I think people kind of go to one end of the spectrum of the other with this. Like some people are like, Oh, I could totally work with my husband. That would be a dream. And other people are like, absolutely not. I could never work with my husband. I don't need to see him that much every day. Right, right. And our fields are so different. He's a realtor and I'm a, you know, writer, speaker and broadcaster. So 
they don't overlap at all. And I mean, in some areas like list building and those things I right. can help them with and right. can help me. But it definitely is if we're together and throw a four-year-old in the mix right. who's not in school yet. So it's definitely a balance for sure. Remind me, how old are your kids? Eight and four. Okay, eight and four. And so when you are working from home, writing and getting ready to speak and all these things, like you need major focus time to get in your flow and like have your mindset going. Do you have rituals and routines to kind of get you into those spaces so that you can block out all the family chaos and life? Yeah, it's called lock the door, Sarah. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> lock no, the door no, no, and no. put on the headphones. Um, I would say I do. Absolutely. And I think especially writing anything that requires deep thinking, you can't just like pop in 30 minutes here, pop in 20 minutes. And I know some people can, but I can't. I need I'm like, I know I'm not going to be interrupted for at least an hour and a half to two hours where I can just really pour my heart out. And hopefully in those golden making hours, you know, for me, that's between like 10 and one where I can really produce some great work. So my little ritual is to make a cup of Earl Grey tea and light a Avalispa candle and nice. lock the door to my office and either listen to classical music or anything I'm into that doesn't have words so I don't start writing the lyrics because I've done that <laughs> several times. <laughs> um, I love that. And, and then really dig in and really focus on one thing because I'm the type A. I'm like, okay, here's my to-do list. Here's the dates that it needs to be done. Here's how everything works. But being able to be like, nope, close that tab of the to-do list. Asana mm-hmm. does not need me right now. Yeah. And just focus on writing. So I think that's been huge. And you know, it's so funny as I've written four titles at this point and I'm to the point where I'm like, oh, I'm not in a writing season. I can handle, you know, just a little article that's due for this magazine and something else. But no, it still takes just the same amount of focus <laughs> and the same candle. So totally. It's funny because I have routines around the podcast and sometimes I think, oh, well, now that I've have like over 300 episodes, I can just like do this kind of off the cuff thing. No, like there is a ritual that has to happen and I can't bypass the ritual and I can't bypass like the protocol that I've set up. And it's not like a lengthy in-depth kind of a thing, but like it has to happen a certain way every single time. Yeah, absolutely. We are creatures of habit. So I want to share with our audience, you sent to me as part of your media package when you were reaching out to be on the show, this video, and you were being honored as a woman to watch in the greater Seattle area in the South Sound. And I saw the video and I thought, oh, I'm going to watch like a few minutes of this and kind of have it on in the background, like while I'm doing some other things. And I got completely sucked in (laughs) and it was amazing. And I immediately, I mean, within the first minute, I had like goosebumps and tears in my eyes and I was just so drawn into your story. And I found it so compelling. And so immediately I was like, yes, absolutely. Like Tiffany needs to come on the show immediately. And also there's so many elements of your story that I want to dig into and share with the audience. So first of all, thank you for being here. And I appreciate you and your team reaching out because you have some really valuable components of your story that I think are going to touch a lot of our listeners. And I think that you have so many diverse life experiences that I feel like there's something for everyone in this conversation that we're about to have. So I'm very excited about that. I sure hope so. I love that. So with all that, we're going to go back to the beginning because this is where your story starts and where it's like immediately just opens everyone's heart up, I think. Tell us about where you were born and how your parents became your parents. Yeah, I was abandoned in Delhi, India in the mid 80s in an orphanage just shy up until my second birthday. And I was adopted to a predominantly white community 
and lived there with my adopted parents, again, just right before my second birthday, and really struggled with feeling like I had roots anywhere. I had this deep, dark skin, but I didn't have the story to match. I didn't have the family to match. I didn't have the culture to match. I didn't have the experience to match. And on top of that, the trauma of being abandoned in infancy. And in therapists, they call that invisible trauma when in adoption, especially when you haven't met these parents of yours, but you miss them so badly and you just wish how everything wrong could be made right. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily, It's very digestible, and the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30 day money back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners, can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. So growing up with that, it really 
impaired my understanding of myself. And I think that that pain and trauma was truly the lens I saw through. And so I didn't have the tools to move past my own brokenness and really operate in all that I could be because I just felt like broken and damaged goods. I'm trying to imagine how one processes that because like you said, the invisible trauma is so notable, but you also, it takes like a possibly lifetime, but it takes a very long time to work through all that. And it takes maturity to work through all that and kind of recognize what happened and where you've come from and where you, like you said, where your roots are. So tell us a little bit about when that process started for you. Like when did you start it early, early on? Were you acknowledging that you didn't know where you came from or was that more of an adventure in your adulthood? Oh, great question. So I would say as a child, you're very aware because everyone's reminding you that you don't belong and everyone's reminding you that you don't match. So you don't have a choice but to feel so frustrated and just tormented by your own existence. Uh, But I didn't know what to do with it, right? I was just a five-year-old, so I didn't know how to process those emotions. And I didn't, and it's very common in the adoption community where you feel like your adopted parents, they wouldn't be able to handle the heaviness of these topics. Therefore, you just kind of stuff them down. Even the sweetest parent, you feel like, okay, this is going to hurt them. Uh, Therefore, I can't share this with them. And of all the adoptees, I know they feel very similar in that regard. So I'd say growing up, it really came to a head. (laughs) when I was 21 and I moved abroad to be with this handsome man. And it wasn't just like, oh, I met this guy on the internet. No, 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 no. We met at a summer wedding. We dated for a little over a year. He's English. And I moved to the UK to be with him and be near him and continue our relationship and move towards marriage. I totally saw this man being my husband for the rest of my life and having his babies and living life there. And I'd previously lived abroad. So I felt very comfortable in the UK. I loved living there. It was a really, really, really great time in my life. So here I was going abroad to meet this handsome man. I was like, oh my gosh, this is my life. And I remember after I sold my car, closed down my bank account, quit my job, sold all my stuff and everything I owned fit in two suitcases and getting on a plane that was a one-way ticket I remember thinking like, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe this is my life. This is such a gift. I'm like magic. (laughs) Magic. It was my dream. dream. Totally. Totally. Absolutely. It was the dream. And after I got there, I was again, just, I'm a pretty outgoing girl. So I'm just like freaking out, excited and showing every emotion possible of excitement. And I remember it was a Sunday afternoon and my Prince Charming, as I call him, so I don't get a lawsuit. He invited <laughs> me over to his house for lunch. And I popped in there thinking, oh, my gosh, he's going to propose. Like, this is happening. Like, the sacrifice I just made, like, I'm committed to this man. I love him. I respect him. I honor him. And he said, Tiffany, I have no desire for you. And oh it just broke me. It absolutely broke me. And you're wondering, why are you bringing this up in the middle of talking about your adoption? And I'll tell you why. Because in that moment... I should have been grieving over the fact that this man didn't want to spend the rest of his life with me, but it just threw me back to that primal wound of being Mm. abandoned and rejected by somebody I thought would love me, Mm. by somebody that I thought would take care of me and partner with me and be a companion. So it just threw me back to this moment of like, I have got stuff to deal with. Like, I need to go back and figure this out or I'm not going to be able to have healthy relationships. I want to be a normal functioning human in society. So it really was the wake up call 
to get some healing and wholeness. And the truth is we all seek, you know, new storylines for the broken endings of our lives and we'll continually expect people to fill in the gap of where things were broken. But until we can step back and think, okay, what would a a whole storyline look like? What would healing and wholeness look like to me? And until we can identify that and move toward that, I think we'll just be on the hamster wheel hoping for the best and subconsciously expecting everyone else to fulfill our broken pieces. So when I was able to understand that and be like, okay, no man fulfills me. I do have a broken ending, a mother abandoning me at birth and not knowing I'm a father and not having that be a part of my life. But who am I? Am I strong? Am I resilient? And so being able to take what those experiences taught me and not just hate that they're a part of my story, but truly lean in and see, okay, I'm more compassionate because of this, because I know what it's like to be the minority at all times. I know what it's like to feel like the deviation from the standard. Mm -hmm. And then just, you know, after Prince Charming realizing, okay, I don't need somebody to love me to think I'm enough. I'm enough. I'm enough as I am. And I'm a strong girl. So I hated that I even felt like that. I hated that I let somebody else to find me in that moment, because I wouldn't have said that I was that kind of person, to be totally honest with you. So it was just an eye opener, like, no, not that I was like, oh, looking for love in you, you got to fulfill all my hopes and dreams. It was so subconscious. And I think, also, I think we're built for that. I think we're built for such deep abiding relationships. And when those fail us, it is, it leaves us in such broken pieces. So being willing to get back up and think, okay, I can step back from this. I don't need you to fulfill me. I want to love you. I want to serve alongside you. I want to love each other as we love the people around us. So I think it really was able to help me go back and savor all that there was to savor from my first story. Mm. You bring up such a great point that I think a lot of high achieving type A women identify as being strong and resilient and powerful. And we think that like we can get through anything. And I really appreciate that you bring up that you had this vulnerability that couldn't be ignored, that like had to be addressed. And going back, and I'm thinking of situations in my own life that I try to gloss over sometimes because I'm like, oh, but I'm stronger than that. Like, I don't need to dive into that because I'm past it or I'm through it or I've already done my thing. And like, we do have even the strongest, most resilient of us, we do have those wounds that can be reopened and triggered and, or maybe just not completely dealt with, even though we thought they were and all those kinds of things. And so I really appreciate that. That really hits home. And I think it will for our listeners who many of whom identify as high achieving type A kind of people. (laughs) We all think that we have our act together. (laughs) Yeah, we really do. Don't we? Yeah, we do. (laughs) Until something rocks us to our core and then we're like, oh crap, like I don't have it all together and I just need to sit and cry for a while and figure this out. Yeah. So you talk about being in the minority and I want to address that obviously being, you know, being born in an orphanage and going through adoption and having your family be formed in that way puts you in the minority because that's not the common family experience. But what were your parents' race? Were your parents also Indian? No, my parents are Caucasian and my brothers, I have two older Mm -hmm. brothers who are eight and six years older and they're white as well. Okay. So they adopted you in India and then were you raised in India or did you move? Yeah. So I was adopted at two and then raised here in and the And then States. you were brought back to the... Okay. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't clear if they had stayed there and the, your family nope. lived there or they moved back. Okay. Yeah. And uh, even back then, you know, nowadays you have to travel to the country where you're adopting your kid from in most everywhere. 
And back then you were literally delivered. So they waited at SeaTac. <laughs> what? Yeah, they waited at SeaTac for me to be delivered. Oh my gosh. I was totally envisioning that they were there and no, in India no. for like some sort of extended period of time or something. Oh no, nope, not at all. They've never been. Wow. Because the families who I've known who've done international adoption have gone to the country and yep. to live there for a certain amount of time as part of the process. That is really interesting. And I believe that's how it is for most every country now. If, yeah, I, mean, I think it's my true. knowledge. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you went through this process at 21 and you start addressing that I need to address this original, you know, essentially this original birth wound and mm -hmm. where from there, how did that lead you to building your own family, which is probably a bit of a leap and probably a few steps in there, but yeah. I know you've been really conscientious about the way that you've built family. And I'm curious, you know, take us from 21 up until the time that now you have your own family and kids. Absolutely. So after I moved home from England, that obviously ended poorly for me. And did you just move I, right home? I mean, we should cover no, that part. So yeah, what did, did you I, stay? I a little bit of a cliffhanger there, huh? No, I stayed for eight months because I had committed to the job I was working at. Okay, okay. you ready for this, Sarah? I got hired where he worked. And so <laughs> no. I have to see this guy every day that was the man of my dreams. And he has nothing for me. There's no emotion. There's no glisten in his eye. There's no softness in his oh voice. Gosh. It's gone. It's all gone. And I get to see him every day, whereas that was only a dream a year before. So it was just, it was true torture, I think is what that was. Right. But anyway, so I moved home and really started to heal, honestly, like just got around mentors who care for me, who know me, who know how I think, who know how I operate, who know my strengths and my weaknesses and uh, pursued counseling, as well as about a year after that, the job I was working at here in the Seattle area, I had the opportunity to go to India. I was actually speaking at a conference in India and was able to extend my trip and go to Delhi. I, the conference was in Calcutta and go to Delhi where I was left and go visit the orphanage and meet the caretakers and the whole nine yards. So it was a really cathartic experience to get to go and back to the beginning and see and find that no answers to my questions would solve it. I think sometimes we think answers to all of our burning questions, though, then everything will be better. Mm -hmm. Well, you could get all the answers you want and you could still feel like a bag of bones. And so to be able to be there and find that for me, I'm a woman of faith. And so it was a really profound experience of what I believe about love mm -hmm. and what I believe about forgiveness and what I believe about just new beginnings. So it was a really, it was a really beautiful experience to go and see that if I could be on the other side of this than all those little baby girls in that orphanage, they could too someday. And I'm not saying that adoption is the best way to do that. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that I think we're resilient people yeah. and there's so much more in us than we could ever dream. And we are so beloved as we are, even when we're left in an orphanage. Did that give you a new sense of hope and from like you it sounds like you got answers that weren't maybe as healing as you was expected but you got maybe a new level of hope absolutely yeah and just hope for how I see the world hope for how yeah. I see myself I was able to see that you know in my faith that I felt like I've always believed this narrative that like I was left for dead and mm -hmm. then you know I've kind of found my way and I've for me, just felt the love of God. But then to be able to look back and see that, no, he was there all along. Like he loves the least of these. And when we wonder, where is God in these moments, look in an orphaned baby's eyes and you'll find him. Mm. 
So it was a pretty beautiful experience. From there, I met my husband shortly before I met made that trip to India, actually. And we've been married almost 10 years. Congratulations. That's Thank a big milestone. You. Yeah, 10 years. I know. I'm like, this is a big deal. Uh-huh. Look at this. I was 80% sure that that was a good idea. When I walked down the aisle, I'm like, this works <laughs> out. I really like you. I like you so much. You're the best. That's um, so great. So when I met him, he actually grew up in the same hometown as I did. And I didn't ever expect to stay there. I so crave an urban jungle and I am chilling out in the burbs right now. So it kills me sometimes, but <laughs> I get out and about enough to to satisfy my deep, deep craving. But anyway, so when we met, it was definitely, I had come out of that past Prince Charming relationship thinking like, oh my gosh, like. I need to just have better expectations and be more realistic. And I really did. I was way more realistic. And I couldn't have picked a sweeter companion who just believes in all that a woman can be and what she can achieve in the workplace and just the way we've been able to support each other's careers and aspirations. It's been, he's been my biggest supporter, my biggest just investor in my dreams. And even the times when I've wanted to say no, he's like, nope, yes, you should do this. Yep, yep, you've got this in you. So it's been just truly amazing. But as we've built our family, getting back to your original question, I remember we were sitting on the beach in San Diego drinking Mai Tais. And I looked at him and I thought, hey, let's wait a few more years before we start a family. And we'd only been married two years. And I was like, this just seems, you know, let's just live our best life, right? And I got married at 22. So I wanted to take a minute. Didn't need to rush into kids. And of course, the very next month, we had all the adoption paperwork filled out to start the process for international adoption. And in that month, our heart just changed. And at the time, I was leading an outreach program that was focused on Tacoma and the issues in Tacoma. Tacoma, Washington is in the 90s, it was the highest gang crime in America. And so all that gang crime from the 90s, all of the kids that were born during that time are now in their 20s. And it's kind of there's just, you know, a lot of homelessness and drug addiction and gang violence and teen pregnancy and poverty and all of these things. So it really drew me to work there. I would wanted to work with the inner city population. So I was hosting a backpack outreach, the job I had, and we were serving about 7000 people that day. And so I'm like on my walkie talkie, making sure all the teams know what they're doing and, you know, trying to orchestrate the whole event. And it was a busy, busy day. And I love it. We'd done it for four or five years by that point. And in the midst of that time, I saw this sweet mama and she had a little baby in her carrier. And I saw that baby and I just in my heart of hearts, I knew I'm going to have a baby and it's not going to look like me. I keep in mind, I'm East Indian, my husband's white. And I look at this little sweet baby, baby, African-American, sweet baby, gushy baby. And I think, oh, I'm going to be a mother to a baby that looks like you. And the very next day I told my husband, I said, I really think we're supposed to adopt. I think it's supposed to be from a nation of African descent, whether that's the Caribbean or whether that's Africa mainland. And he was just like, yes, I have total peace about that. So we started, and in fact, you can't start the adoption process until you're 25 internationally. And so we started the process. I think I was, you know, 35 days from being 25. So we had all the paperwork filled out and then we sent it in on my birthday Oh my gosh! and started our two-year process from there. And we now have Jericho. He's eight years old. We adopted him when he was two and a half from Uganda. And it was as 
hard as hell and <laughs> I would do it all again. Adopting a traumatized child is not for the faint of heart. Mm. And it's been an uphill battle, one I wouldn't trade for the world. I actually have a friend who adopted her son. I think he was maybe four or five when they adopted him from Uganda. And wow. yeah, also traumatized child. They had to go live there for quite a while as part of the process, which that was its whole own adventure that was terrifying and life-threatening at times for the yep. mom. Oh, I know that. Yep. And I mean, the experience that they went through is just was anytime she shared about it, it's just so eye-opening. But I also, this little boy, oh my gosh, like he is just, I think they have four or five older children. And this little boy, Jonah, is like the light of the world. He oh, is, I love oh, that. he's just so, it's like my favorite thing to see on Facebook. Anytime I see, I'm like, oh my gosh, Jonah's on Facebook today. Like he's just <laughs> so sweet and cute and just, I mean, charming and amazing. And when I see that and I see what they went through, it's like the happiest feeling in my heart. And I imagine that is so much of what you have as well. Like the trials and tribulations to get to where you are, like you wouldn't trade any of it even though it was so hard. Yeah. And I think as a mom, I had no idea how strong I was. I had no yeah. idea the resolve and the resilience that was deep in my bones until I was put in incredibly difficult circumstances. Yeah. Just when you're in a foreign court and you're at the mercy of that judge. And when you have spent every penny to your name, plus some more than you make in a in a year yeah. and you have poured out your heart and soul and done everything possible. You've turned your whole life upside down to welcome this child. And then, you know, the day comes when it is official on paper and then you start a whole new journey of addressing the trauma and finding healing for this. Yeah. I would say that you become a mom in such a quick way. Part of it, you're waiting so long that all that paper, we call it paper pregnancy. But then when you get there and you're like, oh, this is real there, but that get in my hands and he's sleeping in my bed tonight. Here we go. Like, oh, oh my gosh, he doesn't know who I am. And he's screaming and you're like, oh, okay, let's do this. So. <laughs> and looking back, you were really, really young. I'm sure at the time you felt super grown up, but that's really <laughs> young. <laughs> yeah. I was, by the time we were in Uganda, I think I was 27. Yeah. I mean, I had my son at 37 and it was like, <laughs> it was really hard. <laughs> so, I mean, of course I didn't know any different. Right. I that's the thing. That's the thing. Life, but right. no, I hear you. It was a journey. Oh, hey everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? 
My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. So talk a little bit about, I'm curious, how much of your decision to adopt internationally was based on your own experience of having been adopted internationally? Sarah, now this is a complicated question, and I'm going to give you a very honest answer. The rate of suicide, anxiety, and depression in adoptees, adult adoptees, especially between the ages of about 18 to 34, Mm -hmm. is eight times higher than the average adult in America of that age. So it's really a mental (laughs) game. It's really a trying to think of an appropriate word to say, but it really messes with your mind. We'll just say that to be adopted and just this idea that you are abandoned in your most vulnerable moment. And it really just really messes with how you see the world and how you see yourself. And I feel like if you don't get help and healing for that, and most don't seek it until they're outside the home of their adopted parents because they don't feel like it would be welcomed. So I would say that my experience had no bearing on my desire to adopt. It truly was a moment of looking at this baby and thinking, I'm supposed to be a mom to a baby that looks like you. And I just couldn't shake it. I just couldn't shake it. And we pursued it. And we, again, our faith, we feel like it's our obligation to love the orphans and care for them as if they were our own. So that came into play. And that was really what pushed us when we felt like, is this even worth it? Like this feels just like never ending paperwork and never ending cost emotionally and financially. So go ahead. It really was a surprise that I, (laughs) that I adopted. And to mine, I've never met another adoptee who then went and adopted, except I've read believe her name is Jillian Lauren, and she is the wife of the bassist for Weezer, and she is adopted and turned around and adopted internationally and also domestically. So, And she has a beautiful memoir that she wrote all about it. Anyway, so I would say it's not a, not a common thing. That's so interesting because I bet people assume that you did it because of your own story. Mm-hmm. I would assume that's like the easiest conclusion to jump to. and I assume- Or that I was in jail because I adopted first. Oh, oh, yes. So I actually, I know a few people who have done foster adoption before having kids of their own and everyone assumes it's a fertility thing. And they're like, I mean, not that other people aren't good people, but they're like, we're just really good people. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm like, hey, you should own that. Like you own being a really good person. Because that is not for the faint of heart to go through that route either. No, Um, no, it's not. And it's also different, isn't it? I think it's crazy how it all gets lumped together. And foster and adoption, those are different goals Mm -hmm. and objectives. And so it's definitely a both require (laughs) mad patience. So you bring up a really good point that none of these things are the same. And I've talked a lot about, so we went through a big infertility journey and I've talked a lot at length about it on the show. But I think that families are made in so many different ways. And I love the idea. And I so firmly believe in the idea that you build your family and that families are not by chance. And um, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. 
that has made me feel more powerful in my family situation. So I'm clinging to that for dear life. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I mean, I do firmly believe it as well. But I think that you make a really great point that there's so many distinctions and that they're not all the same. And so when I think of, you know, the adoption process that you went through versus a lot of local adoption agencies now do open adoption. And so the a lot of times the biological parents do have some sort of involvement for the duration of the child's life. And that's, you know, agreed upon through lawyers and court documents and whatever. But I think that that's really different too. And that the sense of rejection is different if you have a parent that you have communication with rather than having just all these unanswered questions your entire life. So I I really appreciate that. It's not like one big pot of the same flavored soup. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, right. What a good way to describe it. Absolutely. <laughs> so then you did. Let, let's finish the story of your family creation. So you adopted Jericho and then went on to have a child of your own. Yeah. So they're four years apart, but we had them within 18 months of each other. So brought home Jericho in July and in January. So six months later, I was pregnant. And of oh course, nine ish, 10 ish months after that, Kingston came along. And so that brought in a whole new wave of emotions because I don't have any biological or, you know, relatives in my life or biological parents, sisters, brothers, anything like that. It was the first time I met somebody with my DNA. um, And that had its own profound sacred moment for me as well. How powerful. I will tell you though, Sarah, that kid is very light skinned and I am not. And that was a surprise when they held him up after my 40 hour labor and then a C-section to see this baby. (laughs) He had my big, big, big hair for sure right at birth, but he did not have my skin. I was like, I'm so sorry. What is the return (laughs) policy on this? I don't know about this. You mentioned this in your talk, which I will link to Tiffany's amazing talk in the show notes. But you mentioned in your talk that like you're like all ready to like, finally, there's going to be someone like you and your family. And then he comes out and you're like, wait, he's white. (laughs) Yeah, that. Wow. Wow. Okay. I've been brown for a long time You're and destined that was the to be biggest in a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> You're destined to be an original. And we should mention that your husband is Caucasian as well. Yeah. So yeah. that I means so it, it did make sense in a certain realm. It just was not what your expectation was. Oh my gracious, not at all. And I thought, surely I'm dark enough that he's right, gonna be right. tan. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, what is he gonna check on a form? Is he gonna say he's white? He's not white. Like, oh my gosh. Oh, so interesting. So talk a little bit about how race and discrimination has shown up in your life and in your family's story. I grew up, again, East Indian is makes up such a small percentage of America. And I didn't meet any Indians for probably until I was an adult, to be totally honest with you. So I really felt like a minority. I was just so excited to meet another person of color, let alone someone who was Indian, which was such a rarity. And any Indian I did meet, they said, people just people just don't understand. They don't know who we are. We make up such a small percentage that most people don't know. And also, because I am from northern India, I do have a, I mean, I'm Indian, but I definitely have some lighter color. So here I'm mistaken for Latin or... Pakistani or Middle Eastern. But if you look at my eyes and nose, especially my nose close enough, you will discover I am Indian. And I mean, there's a billion of us. You'd think it would be more easier than that to spot. But (laughs) I would say the biggest factor that was really a change for how people saw me and how they perceived who I was and my personhood was 9-11. I would say after 9-11, I was only 13. 
But everything changed in that moment and how people treated me and especially in airports, obviously, but how people treated me in cities or how people treated me, they, people were nervous around me. And even at 13, I looked the exact same as I do now. I kid you not. The only thing that has changed is the thickness of my eyebrows, <laughs> exact same size, everything. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's got some good skin, but truly it was just so eye opening for people to be so nervous around me and be unsure of who I am or what I represent. And that hurts to be judged by the color of your skin and not the content of your character. And even as I was a child, I was definitely around children who had never been around a person of color and they wouldn't want to play with me because I was brown and dirty and they were afraid that they'd get germs or that they would get dirty if they hung out with me. And an eight-year-old can't handle that. The eight-year-old brain, the eight-year-old little girl and her pigtails can't handle that. But as an adult, I would say, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't give the Kardashians credit for this. I wouldn't give anyone credit for this, but truly just being at home in my own skin and learning to love who I am and my story, not despise my story, but love Mm -hmm. my story and celebrate my story. I was so much more comfortable. So when I would have those encounters with discrimination and prejudice, I had a strong heart to deal with it. And I didn't allow it to affect how I saw myself. And I made it their issue, not my issue. Mm, And now for my son. Yeah. And now for my son who feels like the deviation from the standard and feels like people expect him to act a certain way, say certain things or know certain things. And he has an Indian mom and a white dad. I think we're on our own journey and he's learning how to handle these issues on his own. And, you know, the first time somebody said they couldn't play with him because he was black and he was just devastated. He couldn't believe that somebody would reject him based on his beautiful skin. And so walking through that and seeing, yes, there is such a history of people treating those with dark skin poorly and really understanding, but what can we do? What's our job? We cannot control how people see us, Jericho, but what can we do? Can we walk in love and grace and forgiveness and humility and strength and honor and respect and know deep down that we're equals to them? Yes, we can. So being able to walk that out. And uh, just even the other day, I posted this on Instagram he came to me in his little Bible study club that him and his little brother go to. He was trying to explain that, oh, one of my teachers is Korean, you know, and then one of them is regular American. And I said, brother, what? One of them is regular American. He's like, you know, just regular. I'm like, do you mean white? And he's like, yeah, you know, they're just American. I'm like, okay, first of all, <laughs> there is no regular. Right. <laughs> Second right. of all, white does not equal American. This is all of our home. And, you know, I'm going through all of these things and just seeing how, He has like the United Nations at home, but he still believes that we're all the deviation from the standard if we're not white. So just so ingrained in how we teach and just systemic racism is it starts so young. You know, it starts at the beginning and seeing even from when he was three and four, he noticed things and he's like, why are white people so happy? Why do they get to be all the superheroes? Why do they get to be all the heroes in the book? Why aren't the why aren't the Indian or the Korean or the Japanese or the African people, the heroes, mommy? And so, and then now he's eight and and able to talk about it a little bit more openly and with words that he can understand the meaning of and the past of. And so I just would say, and I know that there's moms listening. So shameless plug of just saying, it's always a good time to start talking about racism with your kids in an appropriate manner. The Scholastic has great resources. Even Kevin Hart has like a little Black History Month hour long episode on Netflix. Like there's, it's always a good time to talk about what it means to treat those 
who have different skin equally because colorblindness is no such thing. Right. I love that you bring up Scholastic as a resource because I notice whenever my son's book order comes home, there's always like a complete section on like all sorts of diverse book options related to like women in power and different races and abilities and all sorts of things. And I'm always like, we're getting these one. We're ordering yeah. from this one uh, here. Like we oh, don't need I another Lego there. Batman book. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, I, I love that. Yeah. I think that's really important. So I want you to tell us about, we're getting close to the end of our time here and there's, oh my gosh, there's so many things I still want to ask you. So you have to come back on the show, first of all, oh, so my we can pleasure. dive into more things. But I want you to tell us about your book. So you have your book coming out, She Dreams. Tell us about the book, what inspired it and what readers can expect out of the book. Yeah. So She Dreams is for every woman who feels like there is a dream brewing under the surface and she knows the world will keep on spinning, but she won't if she doesn't pursue it against the odds at all costs. And this isn't like, oh yeah, you can do it. You're awesome. If you believe it, dream it. No, it's not that. It's saying truly there is something within you. So begin with the end in mind and step back and methodically think, how could I do this? And it highlights women in history who all of them were mothers and except a few at the end who really got after it. People like Margaret Thatcher, she had just had twins and then was running for office. Julia Child, various other women in history who really at one point felt like, I don't think I'm capable. I don't think I have what it takes. And we know their names today and are commonplace because of their contributions to society and because they were really willing to go after the dream. I love this. I was actually just thinking this morning, <laughs> I, like literally an hour ago as I was getting out of the shower and I was thinking, we're all just making it up as we go. And we all like, none of us really truly know what we're doing. We're just figuring it out as we go. And I was thinking That's about so true. <laughs> and I always, I say this, I'm like, anyone can be Oprah because Oprah didn't know. Like she was like, well, I guess I'm just going to do this next thing. I'm terrified. I have no idea how it's going to work out, but let's just see what happens. And that's how like everyone who shows up in these really big roles where we're like, wow, like overnight success or, oh my gosh, I can't believe they made it. And how amazing. No one is more qualified than anyone else to do that. And when we start really digging into people's stories, we look and we see that like, wow, it's just because they took uncomfortable action because they didn't put a limit on themselves and their abilities. Because, I mean, your example of Margaret Thatcher just having had twins is perfect. That, you know, a lot of people might say, well, I should probably wait till the kids are a little older. And she was like, well, or I could just try it now, yeah, <laughs> you know, and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Like, <laughs> but I think that's really powerful. Yes. One step in front of the other. I think of another one that I kind of land the plane with in the book is Ruby Bridges, the first to go into a desegregated school. And she was a first grader and not a middle schooler, not a high schooler. We sent a little black girl into a school for the first person to desegregate. And it was because her mom was the one that encouraged her to take the test to see if she could even get in and qualify for it. And her dad was like, I'm not sure. Is this who we are? Do we really want to push the envelope like this? Do we want to be known as this family? And it was her mom who was like, no, we're doing this. We're doing this. Let's do it. Let's go after it. So with the support of the NAACP, with her mom and with other friends during the civil rights movement, little Ruby walked into school. And now my son gets to go to school with kids of all different colors because she went first. Right, right. Uh, That's such a powerful example. I love that. And yeah, and I think a lot of times it is like doing it terrified. I know I interviewed a woman, Shannon Jamel, and she talks about do it scared. And like, yes, you do it scared. And that's how that's how you get it done. And that's the only way really to get to the other side. Like comfortable action is not going to take you to the magical, powerful, profound place. It's the uncomfortable action. And so you have to do the uncomfortable thing. 
And the person you become in the process of doing that uncomfortable action is amazing. That's what we're really after is who we're becoming, not what we're after. The destination is awesome, but the person we become in the process, that's our greatest gift. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, you've given some really great examples of that with like moving to London to find love and, and having oh, it just blow up right in your yeah. face. Yeah. And I'm sure when you first started to pursue international adoption, there was parts of that too that were like really kind of idyllic. And I'm gonna, we're going to go find this baby and, and mm-hmm. have him cradled in my arms. And then there was all sorts of unexpected hurdles. And I think that that's how it works is you have this idyllic, like romantic vision of what it's going to be like on the other side of this process. And oftentimes that's not how it goes, but you ultimately do get to that romantic place. It just, sometimes it doesn't look the way you thought it would, you know, going into it, like your relationship situation. And sometimes it does, like you do end up with the amazing little boy in your arms and the strength that you built to get to that point is like, it impacts you on a profound level. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So good. Okay. So my final question for you is in what ways are you a shameless mom? I am shameless because I refuse to feel guilty about pursuing my career. I refuse to feel guilty about calling on my tribe to make it happen. I refuse to feel guilty that I'm not the mom who's, (laughs) you know, trying to do it all. I don't try to be two people. I don't try to be a full mom at home and a full mom whose works. I integrate that into one person because I'm not two people and I'm shameless about it there. I'm not going to feel bad that I'm not great at everything. I'm going to do only what I can do. Oh, good answer. I love it. So tell people where we can find you and where we can find the book and connect with you and all those kinds of good things. Yeah, you can find the book at shedreamsbook.com and I'm at tiffanybloom.com, B-L-U-H-M. And I hang out primarily on Instagram at Tiffany Bloom. Yay. I need to, I don't think I've found you on Instagram yet. I need to, I'm like disappointed in my stalking skills. I usually stalk people on Instagram before they come on the show. So I will be doing that later today. Um, oh, Tiffany, wonderful. I so appreciate you being here and sharing your story. This has been really eye-opening and just I know probably life-giving for a lot of our listeners who can relate to different pieces of your story. So I really appreciate you coming and being open and honest and vulnerable on the Shameless Mom Academy. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be shameless mom of the week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media 
Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. 